All right, Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. This is what we read. Then, then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only... They ask us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. They weren't asking something that we weren't willing to do. We were very eager to do this. You know, you look at history, throughout history, there have been great meetings, right? I mean, there have been some really great, important meetings throughout history. Kings have met. They've had these big summits where they bring other kings around. Emperors have met. There have been these meetings between emperors and so forth. You know, in modern times, we see these government summits, right? Governments come together. The heads of governments come and they sit down and the press is there. They're covering it. Histories have been written about these meetings. Histories, whole histories have been been written about uh, such meetings. Even in the church, even in the history of the church, there have been these meetings, these gatherings that have been called. First one we see is in Acts chapter 15, where they call what's called the Jerusalem Council. And there's a problem that's not unrelated to the problem Paul's dealing with with the Galatians, and that is the issue of circumcision and law keeping. Is it Jesus plus the law, or is it Jesus alone? Is it grace alone, or is it grace plus me doing works, doing good things? And circumcision was at the center of it. So the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they come together, they hammer out this issue, the apostles settle the issue, they say, no, it's Christ alone, it's grace alone, through faith alone, and they send out this proclamation to the churches. And then throughout church history, the Council of Nicaea, 325, shortly after that, there's the Council of Nicaea. There was a later Council of Nicaea that happened later on. 
There was the Council of Constantinople in 381. There's the Council of Ephesus in 431. Chalcedon in 451. In the early church, they had these great meetings. And these pastors would come from all over. And they usually arose because there was a controversy. Someone would stroll into town and start teaching that Jesus wasn't God. Someone would roll in and say, well, Jesus was the first thing God created. It's why he's called the firstborn. And so what they would do is they would, they would come together and they would have a council and they would settle it. And we have these creeds that have been handed down to us that define, that nail down things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and so forth. And so they would hammer out these doctrinal issues, but usually they would arise over controversies. As long as there was no controversy, they didn't have these meetings. There have been modern meetings, but, but not really carrying, I would say, carrying the weight of these early meetings of the early church. These are public meetings. They were public meetings. They were called by men. They were called by man. And they're dealing with an issue, hammering out doctrinal issues. And histories have been written about them. But, but... About 17 to 18 years after the conversion of Paul. So we're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 years, give or take, somewhere in that neighborhood after the death of Christ. So, so sometime about 20 or 30 years after the death of Christ, about 17 or 18 years, given Paul's chronology that he gives, after his conversion... There's a meeting that happens. It's an important meeting. It's an important meeting. Monumental meeting that happens. There's no press. There's no publicity at all. None. In fact, this was a private meeting. This was a private meeting not called by man. This was a private meeting called by God. And what he did was he brought some men together in a private setting. Now what's interesting about, when the only reason we know about this meeting is because Paul writes about it to the Galatians. If he didn't write about it to the Galatians, we would never know about this meeting because Peter doesn't write about it, James doesn't write about it, John doesn't mention it. In fact, this is the only time Paul ever mentions John. It's the only time he ever mentions the Apostle John. He's already told us that he went to Jerusalem and he had a conversation with Peter. Remember that in chapter 1? He goes to Jerusalem, he has this meeting with Peter. It was to get acquainted with Peter and then he says, yeah, but I probably saw James too. So now some time has passed and there's another meeting. The reason why this meeting came about, and the reason why God called this meeting, is there's a threat to the gospel. There's a threat to the gospel. There's some agitators who are running around, and they've been up in the Galatian churches, and they've been causing, they've been wrecking havoc. And these agitators have been other places, and they're threatening the gospel itself. What's at issue here, what's at stake here, in this meeting as they meet, and as Paul unfolds it throughout the book of Galatians, this is what's at stake at this meeting. How is a person made right before God? How is a person made right before God? 
What really shows that I'm Christian? What is it that really marks me off, sets me apart as a believer versus an unbeliever? This is the issue. This is the issue. And this meeting's called by God, and He brings these men together. Is it going to be faith in Christ alone? Or is it going to be faith in Christ plus works? Now, the work at the time was circumcision. I don't think I have to explain circumcision to you. It's, we read about it when Stephen's given his um, account of the history of Abraham, and God told Abraham, this is what he gave the, the uh, covenant circumcision to Abraham, and this marked you off as being Jewish, the, as, as a child of Abraham, this physical sign which show that you were part of the covenant community. And there were some, some at the time of Paul and some in the early church who were going around and they were teaching and they were saying things like this. You can believe in Jesus, that's okay. But you also need to be circumcised because really to show that you're a Christian, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. You need to keep the law. And so they're adding to Christ circumcision and law keeping. And they were causing quite a trouble because they were gaining quite a following. This is why Paul writes the letter to Galatians, the letter of Galatians to these churches. This is why he's worried. And, and he's going to tell them, I can't believe you, you've turned so quick. You remember in chapter 1, I'm astonished that you've turned so quickly. How is it that you're giving ear to this? So what God does is he puts these men together, probably in a room somewhere, probably in a house. We're not told exactly where, but I, I could just imagine it's some, someone's house there in Jerusalem. It's not publicized. The Jerusalem Post is not carrying the event. The Roman government's not, they don't have it you know, on, their, on their news sites. Twitter's not dealing with it. Facebook's not dealing with it. Social media isn't saying anything about this meeting this private, in one sense, obscure meeting that happens between Peter, James, John, and Paul. You remember what I told you when he meets with Peter and it's this sort of getting to know Peter kind of meeting that happens? I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting. I'm going to tell you, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in this meeting. Now, I have to tell you this up front, because I used to read this passage in a certain light. I used to read this passage this way, that Paul is so ticked off that they're giving ear to these agitators. And these agitators are saying things like, well, Paul's destroying the law. Paul's preaching against the law. And, by the way, Paul's not from Jerusalem. He's not a Jerusalem apostle. And the Jerusalem apostles have told Paul to preach Christ plus the law, and Paul's out there doing his own thing. He's out there renegading. He's out there just going nuts and preaching this Christ only, and he's against the apostles. He's against Jerusalem. And, and I used to read this passage that Paul was so ticked off about this that it's almost like he says, okay, I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll go meet with these guys. But you know what? These guys aren't anything. They seem to be somebody, but they're really not anybody because at the end of the day, God's no respecter of persons. They seem to be pillars in the church. They added nothing to me. They didn't add anything to my... So I, I used to read this passage as, as if Paul 
is, is sort of in that vein of thinking. I'm going, but these nuts in, in Jerusalem, not nuts, man, that's too strong a word, but these rascals in Jerusalem, they, yeah, they, they, they're not going to add anything. But that's not what he's doing at all. As I work through this passage and I got down and look in the context and get down to what he's saying, there's a very long sentence beginning in chapter 3, chapter, uh, uh, verse 3, 4, and 5. Very long sentence in Paul. And it's very, very difficult to try to work through. But as you get through it and you look, I, I, I've taken a different take on this passage because I don't think he's ticked off. I don't think he's sort of, in, in an underhanded way, sliding Peter, James, and John, I think he's respecting them. I think he's respecting them in a great way. I think he's acknowledging the fact, hey, these guys are Jerusalem. They are apostles from Jerusalem. Yes, they are pillars. And I think that heightens his argument to the agitators because basically what he's going to say is, we're no different. The message is no different. Oh, by the way, the enemy's not different either. God's call is no different. God's message to us is no different. God's method is no different. It's the same. And I think this is what he's trying to point out. But the issue here is how is a person made right with God? What's at stake here is the gospel itself. Now, he's going to give two responses, I think, in, this, in these ten verses. I think there's really two answers to these two questions as we look at it. And here are the two questions. One, the first question, is where do we stand in this? Is it Christ alone? Or is it Christ plus baptism? Christ plus the fight for social justice? Christ plus whatever? Giving your money, coming to church, being a good person, trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You see, that, that, where do we stand in that? And then when we really understand where we, where we stand, when we see this is where we stand in that, here's the second question. How dogmatic are we to be about that? Just how dogmatic are we to be about that? Now, I'm not talking about being mean-spirited and unloving. I'm not talking about that at all. When I say dogmatic, what I mean by that is unyielding. We're not going to give an inch. We care what you do to us. We're not going to give an inch. So those two questions, I think Paul gives two answers to this. And the first one comes by him saying, this is the same message. This is the same message that we preach. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You see the then there? Then, it connects it back to verse 18, where we see then after three years. And then verse 20, when he says, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then verse 21, then... You see what Paul's doing, you remember, he's giving this sort of this historical account of, of, of sort of a brief bio of where he's been, what he's done. This is what people used to say about me, you remember, from his conversion. And here's where I went, and this is what I did. So then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Cephas, to see Peter. This is just to get acquainted with him. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years of this, so if you take the three years and the 14 years, we're about 17, 18 years after the conversion of Paul. So after 14 years, I go up again to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. And notice this, he says, I go up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. 
Barnabas. Where do we know Barnabas? We know Barnabas from the book of Acts. We know from Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas was a Levite. Barnabas was a Jew. We also know Barnabas is one who comes to Paul and gets him when he comes to Jerusalem after his conversion and sort of takes him under his wing and sort of sponsors him as he's in Jerusalem because the people are scared to death of Paul. He's been killing us. Now he's going to say he's preaching the gospel and Barnabas comes along. So Paul and Barnabas are very close. We see Barnabas with Paul quite often. Now, keep in mind, Barnabas is a Levite from what Luke tells us. So he's Jewish. But then he also brings Titus. Who is Titus? Titus is who the book of Titus is written to. Paul had two, probably others, but two famous, two that we know of, because there's, there's two books written to Timothy and one book written to Titus. These were, these were young men that he had, would have taken under his wing and are training and put them in charge of churches and giving them instructions about what they're to do in the churches. And so this Titus, he takes Barnabas a Jew, and he takes Titus, who we know, because Paul will identify him in a little bit, as Greek. He's not Jewish at all. He doesn't have a Jewish father and a Greek mother, or a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He's not. He is full-blooded Greek. In other words, he's Gentile. You have a Jewish man... Who's circumcised? You have a Gentile young man who's not circumcised. I just wonder that as God, as as he will say in just a second, he goes because of a revelation, and Paul begins to think about this meaning. I just wonder, because Paul's mind sometimes works this way. I wonder if he said, you know what? Barnabas, come with me. And we're going to take Titus. Barnabas may say something like this to Paul. Why are you taking Titus? You'll see. You'll see why I'm taking Titus. Okay, let's go. So here they go. They strike out to Jerusalem. So Titus is with him. And he says this, I went up because of a revelation. Now, this revelation came from God. It didn't come from Paul. Paul didn't get you know some bad fish and have a vision and decide to go to Jerusalem. It's not that the apostles, Peter, James, and John, were sitting around eating and one of them said, Hey, why don't we get Paul up here? This didn't happen because of any effort of man. God gave Paul a revelation, go to Jerusalem. And what did Paul do? Went to Jerusalem. Well, that after all what Paul did? Don't we see that in Acts? The Holy Spirit moves and opens the door, and what does Paul do? He goes. He tries to go one place. The Holy Spirit closes the door. What does he do? Sit back and cry and throw a fit and blame God? No, he goes somewhere else. That door closes. He goes somewhere else. That door opens. People say to Paul, come over here and preach the gospel to us. And what does he do? He goes. He saw that as God opening and closing the doors. And here's a revelation. God opens the door and says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Okay. I'm going to take Barnabas and I'm going to take Titus with me. And so I went up because of a revelation. And here's the other reason I went up. I went up to set before them. Now the them will be identified. I went up to set before them, but he adds this, and this, this is where it starts to get a little complicated, try to understand, but, but the English translations for the most get it. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though it was a private meeting. He's, 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 he wants to emphasize the fact that it's a private meeting. This was not a church council. 
I didn't stroll into a Sunday meeting of the church on the Lord's Day and stand up and say, hey, I've got something I want to see. No, he goes and it's a private meeting. The assumption would be that God wanted it to be private. Things were hot at this time between these agitators and Paul. And it could be that there's less pressure in a private meeting, right? I mean, some issues need to be hammered out privately, right? And not drug out in public. So here he comes, and he says it was private. And he says before those who seem influential. Now, as I said, I used to read that as Paul kind of an underhanded slight. I don't think it's at all. I think what he's saying is these are the guys. I mean, if you're going to deal with anything in the church in Jerusalem, you're going to deal with these guys. They are the leaders. Peter, the upfront spokesman early, Right? James becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. John, super, super, super respected apostle of Christ. Besides, these three were also part of the inner circle, weren't they? People would have recognized that. People would have looked to them. I don't think Paul's slighting them. I just think he's recognizing the fact that, yeah, so I go to Jerusalem because of Revelation privately to meet with them. These these ones who were influential... And I want to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, I don't think in Paul's mind what he's thinking is, I may be preaching a false gospel. Paul knows he's not preaching a false gospel. You can't read Galatians 1 and come away with the idea that Paul possibly thought he was preaching a false gospel. His gospel didn't come from man, right? Where was it? Where did his gospel come from? It came from Christ. There's no doubt in his mind he's preaching the gospel. So the running in vain is not that Paul maybe somehow got this message wrong. And it's not even that the apostles got it wrong. The running in vain goes back to, I'm so amazed that you're turning away. I spent this time preaching the gospel to you, and then you so quickly turned away. It's as if I'm running in vain here. Isn't that the way it is raising kids sometimes? Did you hear me? Did you, did you hear me? Did you, did you hear what I said? Don't do that. Don't, don't. Did, what do we usually say? How, how many times did you say this as a father? You know what? I might as well be speaking to that wall. Right? I think that's Paul's sentiment here. It's not that he's got the gospel wrong or the apostles have the gospel wrong. It's like I've been preaching to you and I'm afraid I've been preaching to the wall because you guys are willing to throw it away. That's what the vein means here. And so, I wanted to set before them. Now, when he says set before them, this is a word that doesn't mean let them look at it and examine it and then put their stamp of approval on it. He's not going to Jerusalem for their stamp of approval. He's just saying, I'm setting it before. We're going to have a consultation here. We're going to compare messages here. That's what we're going to do. So Paul didn't in any way see himself inferior to the Jerusalem apostles, but that was a claim that was being made by the agitators. Oh, Paul's inferior. And so he goes. And then notice this. Notice what he says in verse 3. Here comes Titus again. He brings Titus up again. This may be the reason why he brought Titus. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Now understand his argument. What are the agitators claiming? It's Christ plus circumcision. 
Paul gets a revelation, go to Jerusalem. He goes, we're going to have this consultation. We're going to compare messages. And I'm going to take this Greek, this uncircumcised Greek with me. And he's going to be sitting there with us. And it's almost by implication that Paul's saying, if they turn to me and say, why isn't he circumcised? It's almost as if Paul's saying, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Because they're wrong. Now, some have said, what about Timothy? In Acts chapter 16, Paul's got Timothy with him. And and Paul has Timothy circumcised. He does. There's a big difference. With Timothy, his mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. And with Timothy, Paul's going into a very Jewish area. And so what Paul does is said, hey, look, we're not going to make this an issue. I'm going to circumcise you. Timothy says, okay, get circumcised. Because see, at the end of the day, this is what Paul's arguing, and this is what he will argue. Circumcision is nothing. Circumcision means nothing. It's nothing. Whether you're circumcised or not circumcised doesn't mean anything at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he's talking to the Corinthians about this issue, he says, were you called? Were you called to faith while circumcised? Then stay circumcised. Were you called while uncircumcised? Then stay uncircumcised. The issue here is between Jew, circumcision, circumcised would be Jew, uncircumcised is Gentile, Greek, non-Jewish. So that's the issue here. Titus is not Jewish. Barnabas is Jewish. He's got both of them sitting there. And he says, you know what, you agitators? I'm with the leaders of the Jerusalem church and they don't look at Titus and say to me, you better get him circumcised. He wasn't compelled to be circumcised. So you see what Paul's doing? He's saying, I'm right. We're saying the same things here. We're preaching the same message. But it goes a little deeper than that, and it comes out later in the book, because for Paul, he's not condemning circumcision. He could care less about circumcision. He could care less about it. This is Romans chapter 4, when he's talking about how Abraham was given to circumcision. When was it given to him? It was given to him after he believed. He believed first. Then circumcision came. This is going to be his, his big argument. So... Circumcision really doesn't matter. And they didn't make me circumcise Titus, who was with me. He was not forced to be circumcised. And then he says in verse 4, Yet because false brothers secretly brought in. These false brothers who were secretly brought in. Here they come. They're coming in. These are the agitators who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, bring us into bondage. That's what that means. And he says to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for who? You. This is not about Paul's reputation. This is not about a stamp of approval on Paul's ministry. Paul understands full well what's at stake is your salvation. That's what's at stake here. Because if these agitators win, and you give over to their gospel, you're not saved. That gospel can't save anyone. In fact, that gospel damns people to hell. That's what's at stake for Paul. So these agitators, they've snuck in. Jude talks about how those who have come in secretly into the church, and they've been marked out for this designation, 
Uh, Paul will talk about them in 2 Corinthians. Peter, and uh, there in 2 Peter chapter 2, he's going to talk about these false teachers who come in and they're spreading these dangerous, these dangerous ideas. They followed Paul everywhere. Paul has runs in with them, has, has run-ins with them everywhere. But you see what he does in this first answer there. We've got the same message here. And you want a test case? You want proof of it? They didn't even make Titus get circumcised. So if you're right and circumcision is part of the gospel, then Titus isn't a Christian. But they didn't make him get circumcised. We're saying the same thing. We're preaching the same message here. I'm preaching the same message as the Jerusalem apostles. So you guys are wrong. You guys are wrong. Well, then he answers the second one by getting into this issue of of God's work, the call of God. See this in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. They seem to be. Yeah, they they were. They were leaders. But it really makes no difference to me who they were. I'm not going and I'm not going to kowtow to someone just because of their position. It's the message. It's the gospel. That's what, we, that's what we focus on. Not a person's title. Not a person's degrees. Not a person's standing in society. We focus on the message. That's what we're talking about here. And what they were makes no difference to me. And he says, God shows no partiality. Luther got in trouble one time because he said something along these lines. He said, a child armed with the gospel carries more authority than all the popes put together. It's a loose paraphrase, but he said something along those lines. Can you imagine what the pope did when he heard that? Do what? Who does this drunken German monk think he is? I'm the pope. And he's saying a child armed with the gospel has more authority than I do. Luther was right. This is exactly what Paul's saying. God's no respecter of persons. You've got the gospel. He's no respecter of persons. You've got the gospel. You've got the same message that saves kings. You've got the same message that saves the most influential people in the world. You've got the same message. You've got the same gospel. It's the same God. It's the same grace. God's no respecter of persons in this. What are the agitators doing? Respecting persons. What do the false teachers of today do? Respect persons. What is all the social justice movement and all of this mess that's going on today in which Christians are buying into it and attaching it to the gospel? What are they doing? Respecting persons. It's not it. It's the grace of God. So that's a lot of, touches a lot of things that are going on today. So, this is what happens. Those who say him to be influential, they added nothing to me. That's his point. They added nothing. And on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, to the Jews, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Caiaphas, this is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars in the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Who called us? God called us both. You see, it's, the, it's, it's God. He called us both. There's no distinction in message. There's no distinction in authority. God has given the authority. God has called both. 
And he singles out Peter. What's interesting about this, when he's talking about how Peter went to the circumcised, he went to the uncircumcised, is when we look at the history of the book of Acts, who's the first one to go to the Gentiles? It was Peter. Acts chapter 10, he goes to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile. And it's also interesting that when Paul goes into these areas, what's the first thing he does? He goes into a synagogue. And he starts preaching to the Jews. He starts preaching to the Jews. But his whole point in bringing this up and bringing this meeting up is this. There's no difference in our message. They didn't add anything to me. They didn't put their stamp of approval on me. We're the same. It's the same God. It's the same message. It's the same calling. It's the same grace of God. It's the same power, the same spirit working in me and working in Peter. That's one of the things I think Luke is trying to show in the book of Acts. Here's Peter. Here's what Peter did. Here's how the Holy Spirit moved and worked through Peter. And then the last half of the book is here's Paul. And you see Paul doing some of the same things Peter did. Here's Paul. Same God. Same Spirit. Same Gospel. There's no distinction here. Who's making the distinction? It's the false teachers who are trying to drive this wedge. They are the ones who are trying to do this. You know what's interesting about this? Because I thought about this. You look at Paul. Paul from what we know of Paul, would have been far more formally educated in circumcision, formally educated in circumcision, than Peter, James, and John ever would have been. What were Peter, James, and John? Fishermen. Where was Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel? You see? You think he could have pulled that trump card? Yet... Whose feet did Peter, James, and John sit at? Our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when they, in Acts, they said, these are ignorant fishermen. And then they realized, oh, wait a minute, they've been with Jesus, right? But Paul didn't pull that out. He doesn't use that in this argument. And then he says they gave us the right hand of fellowship, basically saying, hey, we're on the same team. We're in this together. What's the issue, Paul? Well, let me tell you what the issue is. You got these guys running around out here. Well, there's no issue here. There's no issue here. And then verse 10, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. They just said, look, as you go preach this, just remember the poor. Paul says, fine. Paul had already been doing this. Paul had already been doing this. Now, there's, a, there, there's some have said, did this come before Acts 15 or after Acts 15, the Jerusalem council? Not quite sure, but it seems to be before because Paul probably would have used that decision in his argument, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Listen, there are agitators just like this everywhere. They are everywhere today. They are doing the same exact thing. The issue is not circumcision, but the issue is all sorts of things. And it's happening in the church. It's, it, it, look, the world's the world. They hate Christ. They hate the gospel. They're doing their thing. They're running wild their way, and they're going to implode. But the church, we can't give ear to this stuff. But they're agitators, and they're wanting to agitate, and they're wanting to add to the gospel, and they're wanting to say, this is a gospel issue, this is a gospel issue, this is a gospel issue, this is a gospel issue. And if you're really, truly Christian, 
That not only are you going to believe in Jesus, but you're also going to do this. You're going to fight for this social justice. And you're going to fight for this social justice. And you're going to fight for this social justice. So that what marks us off as being a believer is where we stand when it comes to social justice issues. I'm going to tell you what Paul would say to that. It's exactly what he said here with circumcision. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Social justice means nothing when it comes to being right with God. It means nothing. Now once we're right with God, do we work for justice? Yeah, God's justice. But see, Paul's dealing with salvation here. Paul's not dealing with a person after they're saved. He's dealing with salvation. He's dealing with justification, being made right before God. And if you add anything to that equation other than grace, other than Christ, you're not a believer. You've believed a false gospel. You're not a believer. What sort of things do people add today? I'll be a church member. I'll give money. I'll go to church. I'll be good to my neighbor. Maybe even I'll get baptized. Luther said something very interesting. And I think I understand what he was saying. But he said something along these lines, and I think I got the gist of what he was saying. When it comes to the gospel, and when it comes to being made right with God through Christ, through faith in Him alone, if there are other things that we attach to that, and one of the examples Luther gave was Paul's not against circumcision, no more than he was against fasting. No more than he's against praying. But if you add something to Christ, fasting, praying, any of the other things, if you add that to Christ as if it's Christ plus my praying, you see, you've missed the gospel. And Luther put it this way. He said, if one way to tell, and I think I got what he was saying. He said, one way to tell if you're adding anything to Christ is when it comes to those disciplines, praying, reading your Bible, fasting, doing those kinds of things, giving your money, whatever, we could make a list of those things. But here's what, here's what I think he said. When it comes to those things, if you fear... Not doing one of those things because God will be angry with you. You've missed the gospel. You've missed the gospel. Is there anything now that you attach and good things? I mean, is fasting good? Yeah. Praying good? Yeah, we need to be praying. Read our Bible? Yeah, we need to be doing all that. But, but, but here's, here's where, it, here's where it, it gets separated from the gospel and being made right with God. Do I feel like that if I don't pray, then I'm not right with God? Forget fellowship. Do I feel like that if I don't go to church, then I'm not right with God in this sense. I'm not talking about fellowship, all right? I'm talking about being saved. If you don't pray, do you feel like you've lost your salvation? 
If you don't come to church, do you feel like you've lost your salvation? That's what Luther's getting at. Whatever it is that you fear that you attach to Christ, that if you don't do, God's going to be angry with you. He's probably going to kick you out. You've missed the gospel. It is purely by the grace of God. Purely by the grace of God that any of us are saved. It is purely by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone that any of us are saved. You understand that? We have to nail that down because that is, in answering the first question, where do we stand? That's where we stand. Why do we stand there? Because that's where Paul stood. That's where the Jerusalem apostles stood. Why did they stand there? Because that's what Christ revealed to them. You see, it all goes back to God. It all goes back to Him. What about the second question there? How dogmatic do we be about this? Dogmatic may be a bad word. Dogmatic conjures up mean things in your mind, right? Somebody foaming at the mouth, sticking their hand. Yeah. Okay, so let's change dogmatic. What word can we use? Unyielding. Okay. How unyielding should we be in this? Let me tell you how unyielding Luther said. Luther said this. He had a way with words. He said, "My forehead, my forehead, will be so hard." It will be harder than any other man's forehead ever. In other words, what he meant was what Paul says here. You know, when Paul says this, we didn't yield an hour. What's Paul saying? We didn't give an inch. What's Paul saying? I wasn't about to budge. That's what he's saying. I wasn't about to budge. I was not giving in. We didn't give in. The apostles didn't give in. We're not giving an inch. We're not. We draw a line at the gospel. We draw a line at Christ. We draw a line at salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We draw a line there and we do not give an inch. We have hard foreheads. And I promise you, this is what's going to be said. It's already being said. Oh, you unyielding Christians. You Christians. Why can't y'all just get along? Why can't y'all just quit being so dogmatic? That's the word they throw at us. My gosh, y'all can't play and get along with anything, you know. And so there are people in the church who are hearing this. They're listening to this criticism of the world. And they're saying things like this. We need to play nice because the world's watching. We need to play nice because we don't want to ruin our witness to this world. We, want, we need to play nice because if we don't, we'll lose influence with the world. Guess what? We have no influence with the world. Those days are over. As a, as a gospel-believing Christian, we have no influence with the world. We have no influence. It's gone. It's over. We're not going to give an inch. We're not going to be mean-spirited about it. But we're not going to give an inch. Because you know when we give an inch, you know what else happens? It won't be long before the whole thing is gone. Go ask the United Methodist Church a hundred years ago. What happened 
when you gave an inch. We walked past one in San Antonio. And on the outside, United Methodist Church, Wesley would be turning over in his grave. We walked along in the outside and there was a rainbow flag in the window. And there was a sign that was proclaimed. This is an old church, big, beautiful building. I wanted to go in. <laughs> so he's like, you're not going in there. Oh, I just wanted to go see the building, beautiful building. And there were signs and there were messaging all over the church about how they're inclusive and they're proud of their LGBTQ believers and brothers and sisters. And what happened? They gave an inch. And look, they didn't give an inch yesterday. They gave an inch years ago. Their foreheads weren't hard. And now they're not even a church. They're not even a church. They're denying the gospel. They're denying God. They're not even a church. There were two churches in the book of Revelation. Remember Smyrna and Philadelphia? Those churches Christ said nothing about. And what Christ says to them, in fact, He says, he says you know, you guys got to hang on. You're going to be persecuted. All right? You're going to be persecuted because of me, for my names, your association with me. But you guys have got to hang on. And he promises these great blessings to these, to these two churches. And they were struggling. They were hanging on. Smyrna, especially. Man, just barely. Felt like barely hanging on. But you hang on. Why? Because there's going to be tremendous blessing. And when, you remember when we walked through the book of Revelation? Who is it that God continually said, these are the blessed ones? These are the blessed ones. It's the ones who didn't bow a knee to Caesar. It's the ones who didn't give an inch. It's the ones whose forehead was hard. It's the ones who did not deny Christ and did not deny His name. Over and over throughout the book of Revelation, these great blessings and these great scenes of a gathered throng in heaven didn't give an inch. We can't give an inch because your children's salvation and your grandchildren's salvation is at stake here. That's why we can't give an inch. Because I promise you this, this world could care less about the conversion of your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. That's why Paul said we don't give an inch. We, we stand here. Why? But because it's for you. Ah, this is a great meeting. Man, it's a great meeting. The only reason we know it happens is because Paul tells us that it was a monumental meeting in the, in the church. So where do we stand? In Christ. How unyielding will we be? Extremely. Even to the point of death? Yes, even to the point of death. Even to the point of losing our popularity? Yes. What if we lose our tax-exempt status? It's gone then. What if, we lose, what if we lose favor with uh, the community? Well, then we lose favor. What if they throw rocks at the church? They throw rocks at the church. Our foreheads are hard. And they're hard because God's truth is hard and unyielding. You see? You see it? starts with you believing in Christ, turning from your sin and putting your faith and trust in Him. That's where it starts. Let's pray. Father, as we...
We try to understand and wrestle 